0: Want to open your Bibles this morning or just turn your attention to the screen? We'll be in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22 this morning. So, we're continuing in this series of trying to understand a little more and to live a little more what it looks like to be the sent people of God in the way that Jesus was sent. So, again, we say this every week. Just got to reorient ourselves. John chapter 20. Jesus looks at his disciples as he's nearing the end of his mission on this earth, and he says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. He's saying, you are to, to live on mission in the way that I have lived my life on mission. And so we're thinking about what that looks like, particularly from these first chapters in John, at the beginning of the book, where he said that. And we're talking in these, these general categories, there could be so much more to be said, but what it looks like to be sent as Jesus is sent, begins with looking at Jesus' incarnation, Just a fancy word for saying God became man. Now that is utterly unique in its most meaningful sense. None of us are gods who become men. But Jesus says in other places to imitate me, to follow me, to live as I live. And so we take from that incarnation that we should live among people that we shouldn't simply have a hit-and-run ministry or mission where we just kind of pop in, show up, do something for somebody, pat ourselves on the back, and then go back to our nice, comfy lives so that we don't have to really get our hands dirty or our lives messy in relationships. No, Jesus came and lived among us. So if we're to be sent as he is sent, then we've got to figure out how to reorient and adjust our lives so that we can actually have living relationships with the people God wants us to engage. We talked about that. We also talked about how Jesus just amazingly actually works with other people. That he actually wants to empower them. I mean, if you're like me, just look in the mirror and it amazes you. Like, Jesus wants me on his team? I mean, is he, he really doesn't need me. But he wants me. He wants me to be on this mission with him. And if we're to be sent like Jesus, we're to see other people not as projects. But we're to see other people in light of the fact that they've been created in the image of God. And that God doesn't want us to merely use them as trophies on our shelf or notches in our belt. But he wants us to see them loved into the God-given potential that they have through Jesus. We also talked about prayer. We've talked about how Jesus gives us this access with God. Jesus met with Nathaniel and he said, you think it's that I said I saw you under the fig tree, well, that's nothing compared to the fact that through my mission, I'm going to give you access to the Father in a way that you've never yet understood or engaged. So out of that, we we live on mission through a dependence in that access we have with God. And then the last thing we looked at, and we're kind of continuing in part two on this, is that we should be a people who demonstrate the power of God depend on the power of the Holy Spirit who are not afraid to ask God to do great and miraculous things and to pray and expect that with faith because if we think that we have we can plan or program or have a curriculum that's just going to change people's hearts then we've just not been doing this very long now we need to work hard but it's ultimately the work of God alone that can convert hearts it's ultimately the work of God alone that can lives. So we could we could break these down. I think we see this in the book of Acts into these general categories of God's people on mission. they're a faithful presence. They're present, they're praying depending on God's power. but then they are seeking to see God's power. So presence, prayer, power. The next couple weeks we'll get to proclamation. But in John 2:13 through 22 we see this demonstration again of the power of God. Let us hear God's word. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Father, may you add your blessing to your word now. May we not hear it. Syllables and sounds, but Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to more clearly see who we are, to see who you are, and to be changed? We pray now, God, that you would humble us so that we can hear what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful according to your gospel. And we just utterly place ourselves in dependence upon you for the faith and obedience that we need to be a people passionate. Good of others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you watch the news at all this past week, and probably every pastor in town is going to milk this for all it's worth, right? You know what I'm talking about is this Thai soccer team that was stuck in this, the most scary situation. Because they're way back down in the bottom of this cave, as it were, and there's just like it looks just impossible seeing these news pictures of how they would be rescued. All of these dips and turns. And some of you probably saw that there was one hole that was like barely this big that these divers would have to get through and pull all of these boys and their coach out of. And and if you unless you're a person that just is totally oblivious to what's going on in the news, this is just dominating every channel, and rightfully so. Because this was an amazing story of a courageous rescue that just put in everyone's heart this passion, this sort of cheering them on. Let's see it come to completion that the whole world got caught up in. And a passion that ultimately led to one of those divers dying so that these children could be reunited with their families and so that this team... Could have life on the other side of what looked like was the end. The question that I've just been challenged with this week, meditating on God's Word and thinking about what God has called us to as a church, is do we have that same passion to get people to Jesus? I mean, as I see those images on the screen and you see them trapped here, and there's all, it just looks like impossible. Anything could happen. Great collapse could take place. And one actually did die. But it was like, we're going to do whatever it takes to rescue these children. And we're going to get everybody involved that we can praying for this, pursuing this. Just ask myself, and I want you to ask you, do you have that same We have the same desire to think, I'm going to do whatever it takes to overcome any obstacle or any obstruction, so that people who are without the life of Christ, without the joy of the kingdom, can come to Him. I think if we're all honest this morning, as we do, often lack that passion. Some of us don't even, some of us just flip plastic. Here it reminds us to remove these instructions and even injustices that keep many people from the gospel. So let's think out loud for a second. Why do you think it is that we can have so much passion about something like that, but then lack passion when it comes to doing whatever it takes to bring people into a relationship with Jesus? Gets us out of our comfort zone. Good. Easier to have passion for something you can kind of see. So no to one, of kids, yeah. No to yeah, that's great, Chrissy. Right, I mean, who's the sick, twisted person in the world saying, I hope they die? <laughs> Nobody, but there's many people who are saying, Would you just be quiet? I mean, could you imagine this week having a conversation with somebody and they would have been like, you know, I think people are a little becoming fanatics about saving these children. You know, they're zealots. They're fanatics. Any other ways you think why we can often lack passion that moves us? still feel like we're the ones in the cave. That's good. We have this mindset, I'm stuck. How in the world am I supposed to get anyone else out of this? These are great things for us to consider. Let the conversation continue outside of this time together. But whether it's these things or the fact that maybe we've just grown so familiar with it. You know, I mean, just imagine if, this, if they were still stuck in there a year later, but somehow we figured out how to keep them alive enough, it probably would have been like, hey, the ratings have dropped, on to something else. So it could be that you've grown familiar with the reality of people apart from Christ or the reality of your place in the mission of Christ, but whatever is true and whatever God's word is saying to us is this should be something that we feel, right? Jesus is not afraid of calling us to emotions and to passion. And we see it in this text in a way that is maybe a little upsetting for some of us. If we're honest, no matter how many times you've studied this, no matter how many times I am, I still don't know an area in my life where I can imagine walking in and starting flipping tables over. But this is the real Jesus. He is passionate about the glory of God, and he is passionate about bringing people to God, and he is passionate about about us following him as disciples to demonstrate his passion by clearing any obstruction that would keep people from knowing Christ. So, two questions we want to answer this morning working our way through the text. The first one is, well, what's in the way? What are the obstructions? What are the, the valleys, the peaks, water areas that keep people from coming to Jesus? And then, how do we clear those? First thing we see are these obstructions, these man-made replacements, we might say, for the mission of God. First of all, let's notice verse 13, what Jesus is pursuing here. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. If we know anything about the Passover, this was an awesome event. And every year, the people of God would come together to celebrate the fact that once they were in bondage and slavery, and God showed up in miraculous and mighty power and rescued them. He redeemed them. He did for them what they could not, and even if you read the story, would not even do for themselves. And every year the people of God would come together and remember the great redeeming work of God and praise Him. And Jesus is going up with all of these people who should have this expectation, this is all about God. This is all about who He is. Let's praise Him. Let's worship Him. Let's come together from all nations for the worship of God. But this is not what Jesus Jesus walks into the temple and he finds those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And why is this so significant? What Jesus is finding here is what we might call pragmatism. Pragmatism is simply a word that means we just do whatever works. Whatever gets the means the ends accomplished regardless of the means. And whatever worked, what they needed to work was they needed a streamlined, Worship is what they're thinking. We need to just make this as easy for the people as we can to get them in here. You see, before they were doing this, the typical traditional thing was is that the animals would be purchased for the sacrifices across the valley. People would go there and they would get their oxen and sheep and pigeons. The reason they needed these was for the sacrifices that would be offered in their worship. But the religious leaders had thought, hmm, you know what, I bet we could get more people to participate if we brought the animals here. It sounds like common sense, but sometimes when we seek to meet people where we are, we don't lead them to where God wants them. That's very important for us to remember as a church. Especially a church that is a missional church. Who wants to meet people where they are. We have to be careful that we do not meet people where they are as in such a way that we don't lead them to where God wants them to go. The injustice here was that they began to add people to the temple who were simply a crowd but not worshippers. They did what was easier, and yet not what God had asked. But Jesus also found there what we might call materialism. It says and he saw the money changers sitting there. So not only did the people need for there to be animals to be sacrificed, but also people were coming from distances, and they didn't have the proper local currency. So this is what the money changers were. And so they didn't have the currency they needed to pay what was the temple tax. So what the religious leaders had done is they had came up with a way to set up their money exchanging booth right there where it was easy for everyone, and then they could add an extra percentage so that they made a little more money off the top. They're thinking, big crowd in town, if we can get the animals right here, set up our tax booth right here with money changing. This is all going to be easy, but the injustice was instead of serving the people, They exploited the people for money. And all this leads to what we might call consumerism. Jesus says, Do not make my Father's house a house of trade. It's that what was to be a place of worship now had become a place of exchanging goods and services so that everyone got what they wanted, everyone's needs were met, and everybody sort of felt good. The only problem was... lack of worship. Consumerism says the customer is always right. Consumerism says comfort is God. Consumerism says self is supreme. And the injustice is instead of finding freedom from self, which is what God wants us to do, the monster of self was fed in the very place The last thing we see here is what we might call nationalism. Jesus says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. This was to be a place in all the earth where people found their identity in who God is and what he had done. But if you read in Mark chapter 11 and verse 17, Jesus further specifies, he says, this is my, to be my father's house, a house of prayer for all nations if you look into the background here where they had set up the animals, where they set up the money changing, it is in what's known as the court of the Gentiles. So the very place where the nations were to have the easiest access to come to praise God or even to hear like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 to come and experience who God is and learn more, they've turned it into the place where they're going to do their commerce and make things easier. So the point was, the Gentiles aren't as important, regardless of their faith in God. This is what Jesus finds in the place of worship. Pragmatism, whatever works. Materialism, whatever gets us the most money. Consumerism, what makes us the most comfortable. And nationalism, a cultural identity that is greater than a kingdom identity. The worship of God is nowhere to be found. We've had several funerals in our family lately, and I've noticed something. I've not really talked about it a lot, but you go into the the funeral home, and lots of people brought food, right, and they set it back there, and if there happens to be another person or another family there, they'll put like a nameplate on it. So if somebody's brought in a big thing of chicken or a big thing of fruit, right, it, it might say Langford family. But I I noticed something, particularly at my grandmother's funeral, is that there's this random guy sitting back there eating the chicken. And I'm thinking, you know, I know my grandmother. I know our family. I know these people here. You might have, like, barely knew her. But you are really, really happy to be here at the funeral home eating the chicken. And, like, sitting back there for hours. And so you may have heard of wedding crashers, right? Who like, we're going to just show up to the wedding and enjoy the party. Well, it, evidently it seems like there may be funeral crashers, right? This is a place where people are getting together. There's going to be food there. There's going to be conversation. But it, as funny as it is, in the moment it kind of irritates you because you're, you're thinking, this, this is not about you getting chicken. This is not about you having a social engagement. My grandmother died thinking about that, this is, this is what church can become, and this is what we can demonstrate to the world is that church is merely just about our comfort. Church is just merely about us getting our needs met. And church can simply be a demonstration of just the idols that hold people back from the great life that God wants to give them in His kingdom. And who suffers? Everyone suffers. God is not worship. Instead of others that we're on mission to seeing a God who is all satisfying, they just see another show. They just see another people who figured out how to do the least that they can to get God off their back. They see people who might believe that Jesus is true news, but not really good news. Regardless of how correct our teaching can be, if we do not have a passion for God that says, it is not about me, then we will display something to a watching world that is way less than compelling. The religious South does not need another form of legalistic, consumeristic, pragmatic Christianity. We have to resist it. It's not wrong to ask what works. But the first question is not what works. The first question is what will glorify God? And Jesus said, and the second question is one like it, what will love others? The sad thing is, like, Chrissy pointed out, imagine that Jesus set up the temple his way and the Pharisees set up the temple their way. Guess who? Guess which one's going to get the most attendance? (laughs) Yeah, the religious leaders are going to win the day. So we have to remember this. Right? Pragmatism looks like victory in the world's eyes in the moment. But the way of Jesus is the way of worship, is the way of gospel, is the way of good news. And we must resist it and respond with a faith in Christ that clings to the truth. We must resist materialism. That's exploiting people. Exploiting them for their money, but maybe even sometimes exploiting them for their stories. Exploiting them for our own gain. It's not saying, how much even can I give to the mission of Christ so that I get to stay comfortable and that's the heart of this. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we're to resist materialism, then we see money not, mere, not as here to serve us, but as to serve the kingdom. Resist consumerism. Consumerism can happen in any way. Consumerism happens whenever something becomes about you. It can happen to the gospel, right? Give me me the teaching that I like, that I want, that scratches my back. It can happen to family. Give me the community that I want, that I need. Do it for me. It can happen to mission. Give me the programs, the strategies, the plans, the models that make me feel good. Where Jesus is calling us instead not to say how can we be served, but how might this nationalism expecting others to assimilate to the culture of anything that is greater to the kingdom if we expect them to have full identity in Christ there's some big obstructions that Jesus sees how does he clear the way we see this in verses 15 through 22 the first thing we see is Jesus' passion his passion for God's mission Notice verse 15. Jesus makes a whip of cords and he drives all of them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. This just almost feels crazy, doesn't it? You can just imagine Jesus' and his disciples saying, all right, this is it. Something's went wrong. But why is Jesus passionate? Because it's his Father's house. So the disciples know that they remember that it was prophesied, it was said in the Psalms, this comes from Psalm 1699, that zeal for your house will consume me, that this is the mark of God's King, this is the mark of God's Son, this is the mark of the one who represents the Father, is it as a person of zeal, of passion, who is consumed, this isn't someone who's put it on their calendar, I want to give this time to Jesus. It's a passion for God's glory, overturning tables, clearing the way for the worship the temple was designed to have, and it's bold. Notice verse eighteen. Someone said, "No one re- will resist it." Well, this was resisted. The Jews said to him, "What sign do you show?" Us for doing these things. Now, this wasn't every Jewish person. We know Jesus was a Jewish person. All of his disciples are Jewish people. But when it's, this, this term is used in this way, the Jews—it's talking about the Jewish leaders. It's talking about the religious establishment. Jesus was not getting a pat on the back for doing this. Jesus is not going to get an opportunity to speak at a conference, right, because he do this. Jesus isn't going to have a YouTube video go viral of him driving everyone out of the temple and people liking it. No, what Jesus is doing is on his own is standing up against all the powers and principalities in the world. This is a very bold move. This is like the equivalent today of somebody jumping the gate at the White House and storming in the doors. This is like if you were at your house today and somebody was having a conversation with you and got mad at what you said and started flipping the tables over. This is intense. We may have heard this so many times, you you might have a hard time feeling this. This This was very intense. This was very dangerous for Jesus to do this. They're not just saying, oh, somebody's having a meltdown over here. No, the religious establishment now is responding to this. And what all of us in here have to say is this is Jesus' stance to the idolatries in all of our hearts. Our God is a God full of grace, but Jesus is not sitting down beside you while you're worshiping your idol and putting his arm around you and rubbing your back and saying, you know, it's okay, it's just your sin. You know it's okay. Humans will be humans. This is how Jesus feels about the idolatry in our life. And so many of us have turned the volume down on the voice of the Spirit in our life that we actually think that maybe Jesus does not care. Jesus is trying to work in you right now through His Spirit to see this is how He is coming at the things that would keep you from the best life that he wants to give you in Christ, which is not a best life of comfort. It is a better life of his kingdom. The things that we ask, do you think Jesus would care if just for today I worshiped my idol of comfort instead of him? Just read this text. it's not because he wants to fill you with guilt or shame or condemnation or fear. It's because he wants to set you free from that God that you think is better than him. And we see this in verses 19 through 22. This is Jesus' response to them. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They're like, it took 46 years to build this temple. So side note, this isn't Solomon's temple. This is a later rebuilt temple. They're saying, you'll raise it up in three days, verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And it's here we begin to see that that this passage that is intensely challenging to all of us who have become so comfortable and make such excuses for the sins and idols of our heart see what good news this is. Because what Jesus is saying is that I am the one who will fulfill and accomplish everything that this temple is about. Jesus is saying here that my zeal is not a lie. My zeal is not a one-time show of hype. I had a a high school basketball coach who would act like he was mad and try to be Bobby Knight and throw chairs and all this, and then you'd see him turn around and laugh, right? It was kind of like a show. It's not Jesus' zeal. Jesus' zeal is not like, me screaming at my kids and then turning, me and Jason talking about this the other day, and then turning and politely talking to the person beside me. No, Jesus' zeal is down to his bones, and this is how much this passion right here, Will, is going to get him killed. And he's not going to tone it down so that he doesn't get killed. He's going to be passionate for the glory of God and the good of others to the death that he will face on a cross. And what is the crazy good news about all this is that the passion he has for God's glory and for these people in this day coming into the presence of God is the passion he has for you. Just let that sink in. This is not just some historical passion that happened a long time ago because Jesus walked in and was surprised that something was happening no, Jesus isn't just like you know, me walking in and you know, I told the kids to clean the house and they didn't, right? And then you walk in and start throwing stuff in the floor. No, this passion here is not random. This passion is rooted in the history of a redemption ordained for us from the beginning of time that we might be rescued and saved. A rescue that Jesus wants to call all the world into and to enjoy. That is a passion It is for you. This is how much he wants you. He turns over tables to get to you. He drives out enemies to get to you. He drives them out while we sit there and worship our comfort. Isn't this good news? He's not saying, you bunch of comfort idolaters, get it together. You lazy, dull, complacent humans, get up off the couch and come to me. No, he comes to us. He pursues us with passion so that we might come to God through him, the perfect priest. Sacrifice and resurrected temple. What a zeal. What a passion. When I was young and in some ways it's still this way, I, I can stand up here and talk like this, but like you can ask Cassie, I'm, if, my natural personality is really just kind of the state of myself. My kind of natural personality, if you was growing up and you were to ask somebody, they would be like, that person is so shy so backward, so awkward. A lot of you don't see that because I I think God gives me a little extra that I need to do what I need to do as a pastor and enjoy doing. But if you ask my family, they'd say, yeah, we never would have thought he would be standing up here. But I remember when I was young, there was a baseball player that I really liked, Will Clark, played for the San Francisco Giants. Y'all probably don't know who he is. He's not a name that's talked about a lot. My dad took us to the Braves game. I was little one time and they were playing the Giants and if you got there early enough you could get people's autographs the only problem was is that there's like you know everybody's trying to do it and there's this huge crowd and the only way you're gonna get an autograph is you're gonna have to fight to get it not like literally punch people but you're gonna have to be this person right excuse me, excuse me, you're going to have to be the person that's not worried about inconveniencing others, which is still for me a big worry, the person that's not worried about making others mad, which is still for me a big worry, you're going to have to be the person that says I don't care what anybody else thinks, I'm going to get to Will Clark so that he can sign my program, but of course I don't even know where it is today. And I did it. I didn't care do whatever it took to get to him, because in my mind he was amazing. He was the best. I have the t-shirt with him, if you remember these, with the big heads and the little little body. I was just thinking, this is the only way that we're going to develop this kind of passion for God's glory and his mission is if if we just get amazed at the the greatness of who God is and the passion that he has for us. We will never be passionate for God and for others if we're not first amazed at the passion that he has for us to experience his glory, his holiness, and his goodness. Whether it's Mufasa willing to die to save Simba, right? Jumping in the crowd. Prince Philip cutting through the thorns, slaying Maleficent is the dragon. We have a greater story of how we've been pursued, purchased, and delivered through Jesus. He doesn't want to guilt us into demonstrating his power. He wants to grace us into that. Because we're amazed. The only way we'll demonstrate this as God's people is we have Cultivate this passion. The only way you'll cultivate it is by time in His presence. It's not going to happen overnight. You can't work this stuff up if it's genuine. You're going to have to have regular time in your life where you behold His glory and His grace. You say, But I'm not the zealous type. Well, remember, zeal doesn't have to look the same on the outside. But zeal is something about the inside. I guarantee you everybody in here is passionate about something. I guarantee if you have children and I come up and grab one of them by the throat, you're going to get passionate. I guarantee you if you have a family member and I was to walk up and punch them in the face, you're going to get passionate. I guarantee you if I was to look at a, a hobby or a sport in your life that you care about, I would see This is your father we're talking about. Your elder brother, Jesus. Get to know him personally. He's just as real as all those things and even better. We demonstrate this passion by paying a price for it. You guys mentioned earlier, if we will lay aside the idol of comfort for the way of the kingdom, it is going to cost you. It costs Jesus. This is the way if you choose a life that loves others more than your me time, guess what? That's not going to feel good. If you're trying to figure out a way of Christianity that says, I'm going to do it without the take up the cross part, (laughs) then we're on the wrong track. You might even lose friends, even family along the way. But Jesus will give you a better joy in all this, we demonstrate a passion by pointing people to Jesus and not us. If your zeal ever becomes about you and everybody seeing how passionate you are, then you just miss the boat. A lot of people use a text like this just to be a total jerk to people. The application of this is not to go post a lot of bold Facebook memes. That's not bold. That's a coward. If you can be a lion or a bold person on Facebook, but you're a coward on the block out here, then there's work to be done. Right? The zeal that Jesus is talking about is a zeal that gets down in the lives of people and does the hard work of loving them clearing away any obstruction so that they come to the worship of God. This is our call. We need to, we've got to demonstrate this to His people. So that there's no impediments as far as we can do so that people come to know the real Jesus. Father, we thank you for your grace today. We thank you for the good news that you have pursued us with passion, We thank you for the good news that even today you continue to pursue us with passion. We thank you for the good news that although sometimes we feel like we're still stuck in the hole, that we are risen with Christ and dwelt and empowered by the Spirit to go and show people your love. We pray that we would do this in Jesus' name. as we respond to God's word today, we come to the table of our Lord who's pursued us. And we see in the bread and the cup that this was not merely some sort of theoretical pursuit, but it was tangible. It was physical. This is why Jesus has us to take the bread and the cup. If you remember, this is Jesus' transformation, as it were, of Passover. Whereas the old covenant people of God went up to the temple to remember the redemption that they had seen from in their exodus, so we come to the table as the people of God to remember the redemption that we have in Christ, that he gave of himself so that we might be rescued, and he gave of himself to the point of death for our sins. So as we come to the table, the bread and the cup are for those who are followers of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you can come still stand and pray with us, but what we call you to do is to come to Jesus. And to see that he has cleared every obstacle so that you can come to him. All you have to do now is by faith put your trust in him as the greatest, greatest joy in this world. And to lay aside whatever idol that you're trusting in to give you that satisfaction and to find in him your savior. Whether you're doing that now in your heart or you want to talk more about that later. Me along with many others are here to do that. But as God's people we respond to God's word. Through the obedience to the command that Jesus said, do this in remembrance.